This episode is brought to you by Boeing. They have over 200 programs and partnerships that empower women in the world of STEM. We'll explain more in a bit, but first, let's get into the episode. Every time you hit an obstacle and you're like, you find it hard, that's when I rely on my instincts and my gut. And I'm like, dear gut, tell me what can I learn from this situation because my logical brain can't compute right now. So I'm going to need something else to help me figure this out. I'm Carly Zakin. And I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to 9 to 5-ish with The Skin. We've run into so many questions over the years and had so many moments where we needed advice and we got it from women who'd been there. And that's what we're bringing you with this show. Each week, we're helping you get what you want out of your career by talking to the smartest leaders we know. Because we know your work life is a lot more than nine to five. All right, let's get into it. Today, our guest is Michelle Croson Matos. She is one of the most prominent marketing executives in the country, and she is the chief marketing officer for Ulta Beauty, the largest beauty retailer in the U.S. Michelle joined Ulta after serving as the chief marketing citizenship and communications officer for Samsung Electronics America. Throughout her career, Michelle has worked across multiple continents and industries, and we're going to get into all of that in our conversation. Michelle, welcome to 9 to 5-ish. Oh, hello. Thank you for having me. What a pleasure to be here. Well, we are excited to have you here. Before we get into the conversation, we like to warm up with a lightning round so we can get to know you better. Quick questions, quick answers. You ready? Yeah, I'm ready. First job you got paid for? Cleaning toilets when I was 16. Wow. How did you feel about that? Actually, I feel really good about it. Yeah. Because actually, I know I can roll up my sleeves and I can do hard work if I have to. I always think about, you know, um, what Glennon Doyle says, we can do hard things. Mm -hmm. Do you speak any languages? I speak terrible Spanish, terrible French. So that means I can order a beer in both languages. <laughs> we read you like to get up early. How early? Oh my goodness, I love to wake up early. So I've been doing this for years. So during the week, it'll probably be 5 a.m. Today was 4.30 a.m. And at the weekend, it'll be a little bit later. But I just love the whole idea of getting up before the world gets up and being able to meditate, relax, and see the sunrise. Do you set an alarm? Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> There's no way. Like, 4.30 is quite hardcore to wake up. Yeah. That's still, like, technically evening. Oh, no, I completely agree. Yeah. yeah. That, that, to me, does not qualify as morning. What is one product you can't live without? Oh, dry shampoo. <laughs> I was just thinking how I love living proof dry shampoo. Can extend your hair for days. <laughs> what is your favorite place to travel? Well, my favorite place to travel for the last 20 years was Puerto Rico. And then two years ago, I made it my home. I loved it so much. I decided to make it home. I am going to get into that because I feel like there's a story there. What is something we can't Google about you? <laughs> As a kid, I used to sing in the Scottish National Opera. I only did it for like, I don't know, a year or two years. I can't even remember how long I did it for. But I do remember having to audition and all the classes and singing in an opera. Are you, like, really good at karaoke? <laughs> Not anymore. No? I used to be. Yeah, what was your go-to song? Oh, well, it still is. I Will Survive. So I do love a bit of Gloria. But, um, yeah, I, I try and do Tina Turner and I fail miserably. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't have the range. Who is one person, living or dead, you would want at a dinner party? 
Jane Fonda, hands down, icon, inspiring. Um, she just makes me want to be a better version of me, quite frankly. I also feel like she'd be great to sit next to in like a room of strangers. Can you imagine how much wisdom she would impart on you in the most funniest of ways? Yeah. Okay. So in the intro, I mentioned that you've worked across multiple continents and industry sectors. Oh, yeah. So I think that's interesting because there's a lot of, you know, I think kind of shared wisdom out there that you, if not, you know, in, in one continent, then maybe in one industry, kind of begin to hone your craft. And maybe it's in, in different parts of the industry, but you have had such a, an interesting jump around. What do you think the benefit is of working across industries and in totally different markets? Yeah. Well, can I just say, I never intended for that to be my life. I was fortunate that I fell into it in my early 20s. Mm -hmm. And so for me, as a lifelong marketeer, I guess what I've learned is that you can be agnostic to industries. You can be agnostic to countries and regions. The craft of marketing itself has some fundamentals when it comes to brand building. And that's truly tested when you work in consumer tech versus beauty or luxury, private equity, et cetera. So I don't think I realized that in my early days of marketing, but now 25 years later, I feel like I've figured that out. What do you feel like has made you feel most successful in your role, knowing about how many different places and kind of things you've marketed to? Mm. You know, when I reflect, I think there's a common theme of transformation. Well, um, probably not just transformation, brand building and transformation. By the way, I haven't always worked in marketing. My first couple of years, I worked in IT, in supply chain, in beauty care. And then in my last couple of years, I did a number of years in corporate strategy and innovation for consumer tech. Actually, no matter which function I was in, growing a business, that growth side, that brand building, plus the transformational side, so i.e. being able to accelerate growth, were the two common themes. And, and when I look back and I really reflect, why did I feel an affinity to those two areas. I think it's down to my personality and where I came from. I think as a kid, I was always obsessed by the individuals and the leaders that could transform themselves to achieve the unimaginable. And then I started to kind of like figure out what was their framework, what was their blueprint for success. Um, and so that, as a kid, trying to figure that out for myself, then when I eventually entered in the corporate world and I'm developing brands, the same questions would appear. What was the blueprint for success? What's the framework? And that's when brand building and that's when transformation became a common theme for me over the years. Sometimes when people are, you know, even looking to apply to a slightly different skill set, uh, they struggle to explain kind of how their experience carries over. What is some advice you would give to someone looking to kind of repackage themselves or sell themselves thinking about transferable skills? Yeah, those transferable skills are critical. And I've seen that because I've worked across different industries. I think leadership, personal leadership is critical. And there are many books on this, but there's one book that I'm reading, actually, The Leader Who Had No Title by Robin Sharma. That was just here in my library. And I'm obsessed by this, the fact that you don't need a title to lead. And I always remember a personal leadership training that I went on in my early 20s, and it transformed my outlook on leadership. So I think if you can focus on your leadership and hone that craft day in, day out, I'm training myself on leadership, how to be a better leader. I would say collaboration, a passion for innovation slash learning, 
and in strategic thinking. So most marketeers, we all care about growing brands. Well, how about if you're in the business of growth or you're in transformation? You fundamentally need to know your levers of driving growth. And I guess through my experience in corporate strategy, I learned over the years how to hone that approach. Um, and it's so beautiful to be back in this industry to take all those learnings that I had in consumer tech and corporate transformation and bring it into the industry I've always loved and always had a passion for. Because just like brand building, there's always best practices out there that you can tap into and then add your magical sauce on top. How do you define leadership? How do I define it? Well, I think it comes down to, first of all, do you have a picture of what the future could be for you? So... I was teaching my kids this just recently. So I've got a 10 and a 12-year-old. You try and teach leadership to a 10 and 12-year-old. They just think it's someone that barks orders. And I'm like, no, no, no. It's someone that can create a picture of a, a world that is better than it is today. So describing that to them, we're like, oh. And so for me, it's all about that vision piece. It's about getting people excited about that vision in a way that they feel like it's a vision that they co-created. Yeah. <laughs> That's very cool. That's not an easy task to do. And I think the last piece is rolling up your sleeves and getting the job done. Because there's big dreamers out there, there are great energizers out there, but are the people that can either enable others to get the job done or can you get the job done? So for me, I think leadership falls into those three pillars. Now I've oversimplified the topic, but when I try and coach my people or coach my own kids, I kind of simplify into those three buckets because it kind of feels like achievable, right? Mm -hmm. I can do that. When you're interviewing someone, do you have a, a question that you feel like is, is a good test of someone's leadership skills? I always ask them, what was the one failure that they're the most proud of and what did they learn from it? Huh. Because people that are afraid of making mistakes or people who don't recognize the silver lining in a mistake, their path to greatness will be limited. If you're willing just to try and fail but grow from it, you will always tackle the bigger problems. Um, and so that's something that I really look for, that hunger in learning and consistently feeling okay. This might not work, but I'm going to give it a shot anyway. So what is the biggest failure you're most proud of? Did I phrase it correctly? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it. So I guess it was in my, I don't know if it was in the late 20s, early 30s, we're around about 30 mark, where we launched a brand in the US, I'll not name the brand, and it was a major success in another part of the world. And then when it went to the US, it was a major failure. And you know what the success in that failure was? Very quickly being able to determine within one week of the launch in market, through a series of activities in, you know, in-store selling mm -hmm. and, and focus groups, identifying that we had a problem within one week. That in itself in the industry was unheard of. And then rallying the troops so that we could create we'll call it a win room. In those days, we called it a war room. So a win room so that we're like, this is the gap. How do we close the gap? So we reframed success. So it wasn't about making the dollars we always forecast. It was about minimizing the loss. And then we documented that and we were like, okay, what did we learn? What would we do differently? And actual fact, at the time in that company, it became a case study. So being able to really reframe this failure as something that will make us bigger and better in the future that, I guess, was my biggest success. And I, I really grew from that experience. And I still reflect on it today and in areas of marketing specifics, go to market, but also collaboration and how to lead. 
We read that in the middle of your job interview with Samsung, they created a role for you. Is that true? Yeah, they did. Yeah. That's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. And so and I'm doing the classic marketing interview and there's a case study on how to expand this business. And of course, I approach it end to end, an enterprise approach. This is how we do it. But then I talk about how do we motivate our staff? How do we create a framework for our staff to feel that they are being compensated based on the success of this initiative? And this is at this point where my then boss said, we got to create a different role for you. <laughs> what you can do is bigger than marketing. And that got me excited because then I then proceeded into corporate strategy and innovation. You've talked a lot about the idea of intuition as someone's superpower. And this is something that I feel like anyone who works in any sort of decision-making kind of job, there is the data side, right? What is actually measurable? And then there is kind of the going with your gut. Are there particular moments you can remember of, of trusting your gut and it ended up being the right thing to do? Or how has that power of intuition shown up throughout your career? Yeah, you know, so it was always a part of my life growing up as a kid. My mom would tell me, how are you feeling? And she would teach me that the gut is just processing what my brain knows, but at a different pace. And so I remember the very first time using it in a business context. Then I must have been about 25 and having to explain to a very senior marketing director in Procter & Gamble, here's what the data is telling me, but my gut says something different. And I always remember boss saying, hmm. I like what your gut's saying. So I, first of all, it's being vulnerable enough to recognize that you might be wrong and to talk about it, but also use all the data points. So now fast forward into, you know, my life now, Alta Beauty. You know, the beauty care industry really is an emotional industry. So there's all the data that we have. And listen, we have 42 million loyal members, which means I have a gazillion points of data. So there's so much data but it's your interpretation of the data that's the wisdom and the magic. And then there's your instinct on that interpretation of the data. So fast forward from being 25 now to 46, you know, to all those years later, I see how intuition weaves in. Now, what is really important is that intuition is a superpower when you realize, when you realize what is happening. You don't want to be in denial of what the data is telling you. You want to be in touch with the possibilities of what the data can be telling you. It's not about denial. It's about what are my options here? What am I not seeing? And sometimes your instinct is nudging you towards something. And so I always feel like, you know, when there's a big challenge, I always, I love the Ryan Holiday book, Obstacle is the Way. And every time you hit an obstacle and you're like, you find it hard, that's when I rely on my instincts and my gut. And I'm like, dear gut, Tell me, what can I learn from this situation? Because my logical brain can't compute right now. So I'm going to need something else to help me figure this out. And that's when the instinct in the gut kicks in. When I first started thinking about what I wanted to be when I grew up, I felt like I knew I wanted to do something in communications. And at the time, probably like, print or digital media. And I was so focused, especially when I was in college, on that track. And what has been one of the happiest and most interesting surprises on this journey of entrepreneurship is learning about how many different 
jobs and careers are out there. And I know that it sounds kind of obvious, right? Like obviously there's there's a lot of jobs out there, but especially in doing this podcast, we have talked to women in so many different backgrounds, whether that's been engineering, whether it's been a scientist, uh, whether it is um, someone in sports. It's just amazing how many professional experiences that we've heard about that honestly have opened my eyes to jobs that I didn't even know existed. And what that means to me is that it is so incredibly important for different industries to engage with young women, to expose them to options that could inspire their future careers. I feel like even as I learn about this and my point uh, of my career, I am still becoming aware of all of the job opportunities and career paths that are out there, especially for young women. And one of the leaders that we've seen in that is Boeing. Uh, They have helped empower women in the world of STEM with over 200 programs and partnerships. Through their community programs, grants, and sponsorship, Boeing helped get 2.2 million young women and girls engaged in STEM. That is an amazing stat. I love this. And Boeing is pushing aerospace forward and creating an environment where more people can be inspired by the possibility STEM unlocks. Again, it is so, so important Uh, for young women to be exposed to options that could inspire their future careers. And Boeing is really helping make that happen through their programs and partnerships in the world of STEM. Learn more at boeing.com slash team Boeing. That's boeing.com slash team Boeing for more info. Spelled B-O-E-I-N-G dot com slash T-E-A-M-B-O-E-I-N-G. In the lightning round, we talked about how you're a fan of waking up early and you talked about the role of meditation. Do you feel like that connects with your ability to kind of tap into your intuition? Definitely. So think about it. It's dark at 5 (laughs) a.m. It's pretty dark. I wouldn't know unless I'm going to the airport. I am asleep. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really early. So, and you know, something beautiful, magical happens when you quieten the noise and you're really genuinely trying to be mindful, ideas come and they start hitting you. And you're like, no, 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 no. I'm trying to be mindful. I'm trying to mindfulness, trying to meditate. And what I've realized sometimes, all these great ideas, it's when they come to you. And that's when I write them down. I always have a notepad at the side of my chair. Or when I walk, walking's a great time um, for getting those ideas. And I, I think it genuinely is this aspect. You know, some people say they get great ideas in the shower. Mm-hmm. It's just your brain... It hits certain brain waves. I can't remember the brain waves that they are. Is it the better brain wave? Where you start to really be in a different wavelength and you can hear the ideas more than other times. I want to talk about marketing specifically in the, the beauty industry. Marketers have to be obviously hyper aware of and respond to cultural changes as they're happening. How have you embraced that in terms of changing consumer behavior, changing trends. What do you decide to take a risk on? And what do you decide are kind of the things that stay core to a brand? Well, right. So when you're the number one beauty retailer in the country, I think 
you have a responsibility to see and hear your community. And so when your community is moving a certain direction, they, they often rely on you and other brands to help serve them. So one of the core beliefs that we have at Ulta Beauty, well, core belief, like core question we have is how can we serve our community bigger and better today? How can we make their lives better? And it's through that kind of question, that belief that allows us to move at the speed of culture. We're not trying to shape culture. We want to respectfully allow culture to develop, but in a way that we can respond quick enough. So for instance, I'll give you a very practical, whatever's on and social at the weekend, we'll have a readout on a Monday and our creative could be changing on the Tuesday, Wednesday. It could be as quick as that because you see certain trends appearing. And you'll see things that are important to people. People are fearful because of inflation or they're fearful because of student loan repayments. So one of our anecdotes says, bring more joy. Bring more joy through the power of beauty. And that's how you can help as the culture moves towards certain directions, how you can help the, the beauty industry contribute at a very deep and meaningful level. The other thing that comes to mind in, in thinking about working for a huge player in the beauty industry mm. and also someone that's in charge of making decisions around platforms is how do you think through or do you think that there's kind of a responsibility out there in, in the images that are being marketed towards, especially younger you know, clients, boys and girls, or girls and boys about the idea of beauty? Oh, yes, yes, yes. My own children are looking to alter beauty. They're looking at the images that we're putting out there. So this is very personal for me. Every beauty enthusiast that walks through on the Ulta Beauty door, I feel the privilege and responsibility to ensure that we are driving the right messaging on beauty care. So we're very thoughtful, very mindful, hence why we launched the Joy Project. That was through us meeting our associates at work and store and they were telling us when our guests come in, Sometimes we're seeing that they're struggling with some issues. And the reoccurring issue that they kept struggling with was this inner critic, this negative self-talk. And this led us to actually commission a 5,000-person study and research to understand what is this inner critic and what is it blocking? We fundamentally unearthed through the help of our associates in this research that people were chasing joy, but the inner critic was blocking them. So for me, this is a classic example of where, as a marketeer, we have the most beautiful privilege because we've spotted a challenge that is existing in the country right now, and it exists for every generation, every gender, and that we actually have a chance to attack this. And here's a good thing. I have over 50,000 associates at work and store, and every day they talk to guests. So we're now training them through a bespoke training program on how to help our guests identify, interrupt, and inspire joy and create this joy forward movement. What is one way, you know, when, and I think especially with beauty, but with anything that inner critic comes in, what do you, like in your training program, is there something you have people say to yourself to stop it? So we're working with Mel Robbins mm -hmm. on this, the New York bestseller of change and transformation. And so Mel gives a number of ideas of how to do this. But when I spoke with her a couple of weeks ago, I asked her a couple of tips. One tip she gave, which was mind blowing for me, was to, how to interrupt your inner critic. And it's to name your inner critic, to name your inner critic. Because all of a sudden you've identified it, right? So let's just say it, you have to give your inner critic a name that is meaningful to you so that you can 
elevate your thinking towards the inner critic and you can crush the inner critic. But if you don't name the inner critic, it becomes bigger and bigger in personality and it has more power. So I love this idea. And to be honest, you say to me, if there was one thing, Michelle, you could do is just name that inner critic and talk to that inner critic. No, thanks, Josie. Not today. <laughs> Today's going to be a good day for me. I love that. I want to talk about your, how you have crafted your work and commuting life. <laughs> so talk to me about what it was a few years ago and what it looks like now. Yeah. So let's go back in time. So during COVID, I lived in New Jersey and I worked in New Jersey. Great. Easy peasy. But then tragedy struck and we lost a great friend in Puerto Rico. And my husband and I realized, you know what? Tomorrow's not guaranteed. You only live once. And this is when we said we wanted our kids, who are third culture kids, half Puerto Rican, half Scottish, but always living in another country to actually experience one of the cultures. So we said, let's move to Puerto Rico. Then I, every Tuesday morning at 1 a.m., crazy, I know, would fly to New Jersey, would work there for three days and fly back Thursday night. And actually, in fact, it was doable. Really easy peasy because it was scheduled. Same flight, same seat. Just I eliminated every variable I could so that it was as least stressful as possible. But did you sleep? Yeah, I do, right? So I've got a whole thing. So I select the same clothes to wear on those flights. So the same leggings, the same t-shirt, the same pullover. So it's all comfort, comfort. Um, and then I would pre-sleep. I know this sounds a bit dorky, but you know, someone who is obsessed by sleep, I would go to bed around about eight or nine and sleep for a couple of hours, then get up, go to the airport and then sleep another three, four hours on the plane and then go and change and go to work. And it worked because I consistently prioritize sleep every night. Like sleep for me is minimum seven hours, ideal eight hours. And I don't oversleep at weekends because that just disrupts your whole sleep rhythm as well. I'm obsessed. So by nine o'clock, if I'm not in bed, there's something wrong. <laughs> and it's my kids that want to stay up late. And I'm like, no, no, no. Mommy has to go to bed. So we're all going to bed. What do you think you've taken away from that experience, especially as people try to navigate, you know, work now, it's remote, it's hybrid, it's bringing people back. It, it's some places they're cool with, you know, working from where other, other places are, are going back to being much more traditional in their approach. Yeah, they are for sure. I mean, I'm traveling to my office probably two, sometimes three weeks a month. And for me, I have a fundamental belief that I should live where, where I want to live and I should work where I want to work. And if I'm willing to make the sacrifice, and it's a sacrifice of traveling and also not seeing my family Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday consistently, then that's okay. So I would say you need to know what you're willing to sacrifice for what you're trying to achieve. For me, it was really very important that my husband return to his homeland. And it was very important that my children experience his homeland through him, the food, the language, the culture. Now, if we leave in a couple of years, great, done. They will always call themselves Puerto Rican and they will say it with pride. And I gave them a slice of something that I can never take away. You can never take away someone's identity. It only builds them up for the future. So what are you willing to sacrifice for your dreams? It's so interesting how you talk about the idea of of sacrificing, seeing your kids for the bigger gift in, in your words that you want to give them of really being connected to the culture. Was that something that came kind of instinctively to you or how did your family think through that? Yeah, well, you know, we've been an expat family, my husband and I, since we've been 21, we've been moving countries. So we're always craving this 
let's return home. I mean, I have not lived in Scotland since I've been 21. So that whole dynamic long gone for me. And the closest I ever had to it was when I returned to London for a couple of years. And when I was in New Jersey, I was great. I really felt like it was closer to home. But the reality is, it isn't the same. So we were very, very intentional about those sacrifices. And the minute those sacrifices don't pay off, that's when we change again. And maybe, you know, the kids will move to Chicago. Maybe we'll move elsewhere. Who knows? But I think that was another thing as well. We realized because life, well, you only live once and tomorrow's not guaranteed. Don't overplan everything. Go with the flow. With respect to your kids' mm -hmm. school in life, you know, so my kids were young enough. We could move countries. It was no problem. At some point, now we need to be more stable. But if someone said to me, you have to move country and move to Asia or move to South America, I would always be so open because I believe it adds to your experience as a human being. When you talk through what it was like to commute the way you described it, you eliminated a lot of things that caused decision fatigue. Do you have a recommendation for one of the things that you streamlined that made a huge difference? God, I could give a list, but pick the same seat on the airplane. I, I just pick the same seat. I don't even, it's not, why, why would I create a variable? Do I sleep better on my left or my right side? No, no. I just know I'm better on the right side. I know I'm better by the window. It, if it's a nighttime flight, I'm on the window. If it's a daytime flight, I'm in the aisle. It's crazy, right? I wear the exact same clothes that I travel in. Easy peasy. They're always put aside. So it was just eliminate all the variables that one doesn't need to have. I use the same car service. So that's not a variable for me. So final question I have. Actually, two questions. What is the one beauty trend you tried and would not recommend? I wouldn't recommend. Oh, I've tried Botox a couple of yeah. times and it's not for me. Yeah, it's not for me. I think that, that that's because I genuinely, I grew up with my mom and my father both talking about laughter lines and we really celebrated. We celebrated aging in a way that's ageless. We celebrated that as a family. And so my dad would always go, oh, look at those laugh, laughter lines. And so for me, that's, um, it's a flashback to my family. Um, and Botox would remove that for me. So I tried it. It just wasn't for me because of a fundamental connection of what those lines meant. That's beautiful. I say that's beautiful as I like happily get my, my Botox, but I agree. <laughs> Meaning, you know, everyone has their, their own thing. Um, finally, who is someone else we should have on the show? Oh, Corey from Elf, if you've not had her. She is one of the most magical CMOs, Corey. She is just such an out-of-the-box, innovative thinker. I love her, love her. Or Sophia from TikTok. She's just amazing when it comes to communities. Those are two rock star ladies that I would recommend. Great. Well, Michelle, thank you so much. I really appreciate the conversation. Oh, Danielle, thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of 9 to 5-ish with The Skim. A new episode will be in your feed again next Wednesday. And if you want to keep up with us in between episodes, follow us on Instagram at Carly and Danielle. It's a really good account, I promise. <laughs>